something it has to be worthwhile and it has to be worthwhile for your customers for your constituencies for yourself for your team and what I mean by that I don't mean that financial actually I, I don't mean it financially at all I mean it in terms of the impact like we don't need more social media companies out there or so many ways of sharing photos uh, we've got big problems like we have health crises we have climate crises uh, we have global economic like you know, equality crises and there's solutions to a lot of these problems. And the solutions actually are out there. So spend time on those important problems and, and on the things that are a little more trivial. That was Matt Rogers, co-founder of Nest and Insight.org, in conversation with two founding members of Nest, Shige Honjo and Amy Honjo. These are just some of the many inspirational speakers that we have here at the Rhodes Ventures Forum 2019, which is a packed full two days that convenes current Rhodes Scholars, Rhodes Alumni, Atlantic Fellows, and leaders in the international business community so that they can discuss innovation, entrepreneurship, and investment, as well as to explore how we can create ventures that improve the world. In this episode, find out more about the life stories of Matt Rogers, Shige Honjo, and Amy Honjo, as well as their involvement with innovative ventures. We'll find out about Matt and Shige's time at Apple, Amy, Shige and Matt's experiences at Nest, the company that built the first machine learning thermostat, and what Star Wars can teach us about entrepreneurship. So I just want to start with you two, Matt and Shige. Thinking about your time at Apple, tell us a bit about your roles at Apple. Sure. So I started at Apple first as an intern in 2004 and then full-time in 2005, originally as a software engineer on the iPod team. And I joined kind of back before these things became popular, uh, back when it was a small team. And it felt like a, very much like a startup within Apple. Once I, I went full-time after graduating from college, uh, I was one of the first folks on the, on the first like iPhone prototype, kind of pre-even iPhone product, we didn't even call it that at the time. Uh, so for me, uh, I, I was working in the cell phone world for about 15 years, and I had this one recruiter kept on calling me to recruit for Apple. Uh, and at that time, they were making phones or anything like that, but I kind of had an idea. Anyways, um, uh, after many, many years of recruiting, I finally decided to join right before the first iPhone. And I uh, basically executed on the hardware side of things at, on the iPhone for the first four iPhones. I believe, yeah. um, Matt, in your case, it was your dream from quite a young age to, to work yeah. at Apple. I was one of those rare kids who knew what he wanted to do, or at least think he knew what he wanted to do. So like, I had actually visited Apple when I was 13 on like a family vacation out to California. And it was one of those things that, like, you know, you see the sites of Golden Gate Bridge, and I wanted to go visit the Apple campus. Uh, I always wanted to work at Apple as a kid. I was always admired their products and like their strive for making great stuff. And coincidentally, and very luckily, it was my first job out of college. How did your time at Apple then shape how you approached building Nest? Nest was kind of born out of a product philosophy at Apple. 
yeah. like questioning the status quo, not accepting things for how they are. And when we started Nest, we took something that a product category that was you know, boring, outdated, like no one cared about, that people took for granted, and thought about how do you build a beautiful, easy to use product of desire that actually helps helps humanity. Because no one had approached thermostats from the product development philosophy that we came from. I was thinking, you know, I wonder how ambitious it was to think about creating this machine learning thermostat. Because when I was reading about it, um, the way that it learns how warm you like your home to be, and it learns to turn itself down when you leave, and I thought, wow, that's that's incredible. That must have been such a big idea when you came up with it. We didn't actually invent too much new technology. Yeah. I, these are all things that were actually fairly complex. Like we took even the iPhone, same thing. Yeah, yeah iPhone yeah, was same same, same, same way. way. Yeah, yeah. Like the innovation for the iPhone was putting all these components together and making an interface that's very easy to use and very intuitive. Right. That was kind of the same yeah. philosophy we used. That's we, right. we took you know, a lot of parts from the cell phone industry to make the hardware. Uh, we used software that was very commonplace in the kind of the general internet industry. Uh, and we put these together in a really kind of clever way. Like the, the, the innovation was in the integration, not in the technology itself. Do you think in some ways that's the sort of key to success, not, not setting yourself these huge targets of creating technology from yeah. scratch? We, I have this uh, term saying that, you know, making sure that we're not working on a science project and that we, we work on something that's more uh, realizable. Like when you start a new company or a new business, there's a lot of risk. And like building anything is all about managing that risk. So if you want to, let's say, build a new company and a new product in a new industry, so you have technology risk, you have product risk, you have business risk, you have team risk. So whatever you could do to kind of reduce risk by using things that are already out there, uh, you know, helps make your chances of success a little more. Yeah. yeah, and I just want to focus on that idea of risk because how hard was it to leave you know, such a huge tech company like Apple to, to go and co-found it and build this yeah. new idea. I, I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. I, for me, we uh, my wife, we were married actually, uh, oh. and and uh, uh, when they asked, came asking me uh, to join Nest, um, we we don't have any kids and we set our lives up so that we can make uh, bold choices. And, and Nest is one of them. Uh, easy, easiest for us to just leave and leave all the money and all the craziness at Apple and try this thing because that, that's us. So um, I wouldn't, I'm not a good person to ask that question. But, but uh, at the same time, for me, the, the mission was very important. Uh, just to finally realize my 15, 20 years of engineering to finally to do something that me, it means a lot for the world. Mm, I want to pick up on that mission as well yeah. because I was going to ask you know, how important is it for all of you that Nest products are helping to save energy in homes, they're helping to prevent burglaries and, and fires, um, you know, because you've got the smoke and carbon monoxide yeah. alarms as well as the, the cameras, the video doorbells, as well as the machine learning uh, thermostat. Yeah. Um, so yes, how important is it that these products have such a uh, focus on social and environmental um, impact? That was a huge, huge plus. Um, when we first started talking about Nest, that was the one thing that really made it different, the fact that we were gonna save energy. That was our first, the first idea was the thermostat, right? So it was just incredible that we were, were making something that was gonna be fun and awesome to use and also save the world in certain ways by reducing the energy that's consumed. It was exciting. It was a time that we really thought we would be um, you know, changing an industry, making people think a little bit broader about what, what products they're making and how they can make impact. 
give, give me some numbers because I've heard some amazing numbers of how much energy the um, the firm stat has has seen. Okay, so I, I think I left about a year ago, so let's, I may a little bit dated numbers, but order of magnitude like 50 or 60 million megawatt hours of energy. So like, let's see if I can put that in perspective because these numbers don't mean anything at some point. They're just telephone numbers. So like 50, 60 million megawatt hours is probably about as much as the entire planet uses in a couple hours, maybe a day, maybe wow. even two days. Yeah. So it's like like epic amounts of energy. Yeah. We, we launched our first product. 2011. 2011. Yeah. So it's not been that many years. Uh, if you think about what these kind of opportunities you do at scale over, over generations, it makes a very big difference. Uh, yeah, like mission first is, is critical. Like, if you're gonna spend and dedicate your life to building something, shouldn't it matter? And you know, we have rare, you know, rare opportunities to make this kind of difference and to make these kind of products. So if you're gonna do it, you know, make it count. I think that's a really good message. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I imagine it wasn't all easy going. Um, so tell us a bit about the process of, uh, of building Nest um, and the, some of the challenges that you came across. Well, I can talk to one specific challenge. We were launching our big launch, which is when we were going to go into retail stores. And I ran the packaging team, um, which you would think would be a sort of a simple thing to do. You'd make a box and, you know, package and, and send it off. But it was that specific package that caused us almost to, to not hit our launch date because something as simple as a supplier, someone who was making the packaging, deciding it wasn't worth their while two weeks before we were going to launch. Um, that was a huge problem. They just decided, no, this wasn't worth our while. Our name wasn't that big yet, so they didn't really consider us um, important, I think. And two weeks beforehand, the packaging was, um, it could have been a disaster. So because luckily enough, we had some really good relationships uh, out there in in the supply world, they I was able to make a call and have another company come and help us with um, redoing the packaging for this huge launch that happened in two weeks. So, and you know, in my mind, I kept thinking, my gosh, you know, this box is going to stop us <laughs> from launching our product, and then we won't be able to get in stores. And it's the little things that count, and that was a huge lesson that so I learned. managing risk. There's so many <laughs> things that go wrong. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you, we want to be really like. Basically, being an executive at an early stage company is all about managing risk. Yeah, yeah. People don't understand when we make a hardware device, how much you depend on outside help. Not everything is under your control. And, and, and again, our name wasn't big. The only thing we had going for us is our, is our track record. Yeah, personal risk. Right. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, I don't know how many times I can count um, that our outside people did not. Know, come through and had a high chance of uh, failure. Yeah, like a lot of things are not in your control, so right. it's all about relationships. Yeah. How do you deal with that sort of uncertainty then, day to day? It is, uh, for one, you have to have the right people in your company. Um, it's, it's paramount. Um, and also, too, to have the right uh, people in place to deal with this as well. Um, uh, I'll be quite honest with you, we've had some people from, I hired some people from Apple uh, to come help us out, but their mindset was different because they still had the Apple hat on and came in with a Apple mindset saying, hey, please come to me and you know do great things. Uh, but I had to manage that person out because it, it, you, know, you had to change your mindset. You're, you're a very small, you're a small company and you have to be staying humble 
and, and continually talk about the value you provide to them. So yeah, David versus Goliath mentality is very different. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you about your team and ask about how you, you build your team, but since you just mentioned that sometimes you take people on board in your team who don't quite have the right mindset, what do you do in that situation when you're a small company and you've taken someone on who isn't quite approaching things in the way that you want? How do you address that? How do you deal with that? Yeah, we actually, we, we all made mistakes in hiring. Yeah. Like we, 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 we went from you know, a new company with zero folks to about 300 folks in four years. So it's a lot of hiring. Uh, and we did a pretty good job, but like actually all of us made mistakes. Mm-hmm. And yeah. sometimes we were slow to identify those mistakes. And sometimes we were quick to identify them, but slow to act on them. We were like, oh, like, this person was so highly recommended by this person. You know, such a long relationship and track record. But again, like as she guys said, context is really important. And being successful at a company like Apple or at Microsoft or Google is very different than being successful at a startup. Uh, I think one nice thing about Nest was the decision making was very clear. There is a process in place, but everyone's voice was heard. Um, and it was really important because there was a lot of work to do and just a handful of people. So those, everyone would jump in and offer advice in different areas, but then you'd have the expert making the decisions. How do you maintain some kind of balance? How do you switch off from time to time? Or is that just not even possible? I mean, Shige was like kind of the coach for the whole company on this, but like in, in order to maintain like the health of the team, like you actually need to focus on health. Yeah. So like the team would go out on runs or bike rides together. Yeah. Like it was like, you know, it's important to maintain mental health, physical health, especially in times of stress. Yeah, because we're talking a bit this weekend about sustainable ventures, and I wonder how much of a sustainable venture is also making sure that uh, your leaders within the venture, like yeah. yourselves, are also living sort of sustainable lives and that your team is as well. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's very important um, to be able to, it's like a, I always tell my team that listen, we're not, this is not a sprint, it's a marathon, and, and you yeah. need to keep training for it. It's a lot like marathon training. Yeah. But like if, like if, you, if you sprint and you burn out, in the first six months, you probably won't finish. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk a little bit about keeping your team on board then and, and motivating your team. Matt, I've heard you're a big Star Wars fan. What can Star Wars teach us then about entrepreneurship? Ooh, wow. That's a good one. Uh, Star Wars is like a David and Goliath story, right? Like how like a small group of really passionate people could go up against a large incumbent and really in this case, change the galaxy. Uh, and I, and I actually, it's a, it's a similar analogy. Like I, you know, uh, being a student of history, or in this case, like science fiction history, like uh, there's there's a lot of stories that are you know they're told through time and like the the hero's journey of being like is, is one of the kind of the key stories of literature and it applies to entrepreneurship too. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I think the key is actually like there's this notion of like the hero's journey, but the reality is like the the single hero is, is a myth. Like, it's always teams in, in like, groups that make things happen. And uh, often, especially in Silicon Valley, they kind of over-glorify the hero or the founder. The reality is it is a team effort, and the founders that realize it's a team effort are the ones that actually are successful. So Star Wars is this grand narrative, and it relates to the narrative of uh, a startup. And I, I think one of the things I've already been wondering this weekend is how much... Uh, the narrative of the startup really matters in terms of getting funding for your startup or just even 
uh, motivating your team, making sure that they're on board with the narrative and they understand why you're doing this? Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's human nature, right? Uh, you know, people respond to, to narratives and, and to stories and they want to be a part of a mission. And you know, part of the job of, of leadership is to create that story and narrative for the mission. Because eventually, like, what, what your internal mission story is, the way you motivate your employees, is going to be the same way you attract your customers and build mm-hmm. your business. Do you think as an entrepreneur as well, you have to be clear on your own personal narrative when you're going from when maybe one startup to another startup and you're almost sort of developing your own personal brand as an entrepreneur? How important is that? Or is it really just about the startups that you've been associated with? I think reputation is a really important thing. Like reputation and credibility are, are foundations of trust. Right. So like that you were a good person, you treated people well, like you were great to work with, you were respectful and responsible, ethical. These right. things I think are, are critical and right. those don't go away, but like whether you were on the cor- you know, cover of Fortune magazine is not important. Right. It doesn't matter at all. Right. Yeah. And so another part of what we're talking about this weekend is how to make a venture sustainable. We touched on this a bit, but what are your top tips? So I think one is, you know, if, if you're gonna dedicate your life to doing something, it has to be worthwhile, and it has to be worthwhile for your customers, for your constituencies, for yourself, for your team. And what I mean by that, I don't mean that financial. Actually, I, I don't mean it financially at all. I mean it in terms of the impact. Like we don't need more social media companies out there. Or so many ways of sharing photos. Uh, we've got big problems. Like we have health crises. We have climate crises. Uh, we have global economic like you know, equality crises. And there's solutions to a lot of these problems. And the solutions actually are out there. So spend time on those important problems and yeah. not on things that are a little more trivial. If you hadn't pursued the path that you're on now, what do you think you'd be doing? I mean, Matt, obviously you'd be directing the next Star Wars. I'd love to. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know if Disney would hire me, but uh, uh, maybe I can apply actually. Yeah, yeah but if I wasn't doing what I'm doing now, I mean, I love building products. And if I wasn't helping, helping entrepreneurs you know, drive for impact, I, I'd probably be building something on my own. I, I would probably be teaching. I like working with um, students and helping them to realize their best selves. And so perhaps that would be a different path I'd take. Yeah, for me, uh, similar being, uh, I want to focus on people. Like, how do we create the next leaders and, 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 and have people do more things later on? So that's my focus. Well, I'd love to sit here and chat to you all day, but I'm aware that there's lots of exciting things going on downstairs that um, we'll want to get back to you. So thank you very much for coming to to talk to us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. To hear more inspirational stories from the Rhodes Ventures Forum 2019, Listen in on my conversations with other speakers in the rest of these podcast episodes. This podcast was produced by me, Christy Callaway-Gale, and brought to you by the Rhodes Trust. The music you heard was called Feeling Sunny by Scott Holmes, provided by freemusicarchive.org.